What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast. My guest today is Dr. Elisa Morales, who is currently a postdoc for the University of Texas. How are you today, doctor? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Yeah, so I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. It's actually, we're both here in Dallas. It's a little chilly out today. Um, I don't know if you've been outside yet, but it's like mid 60s. And what's going on? It's September in Texas. That's not supposed to happen. So what can you do, I guess? (laughs) So um, tell us a little bit about yourself and then uh, we'll be able to jump into the topic for today. Okay. Well, um, I did my bachelor's in nutrition in Universidad Autónoma de Nuevo León in, in Mexico. And the last two years of my bachelor's, I got involved in a basic research center working with animal models of obesity. And I learned a ton working in this research center. I, By the end of my bachelor's degree, I applied for a Fulbright scholarship. And I got it, so I chose Baylor. I, I came to, to do my master's at Baylor because they combined not only exercise but also nutrition, and I wanted that combination. So for my master's degree, I worked um, under the guidance of Dr. Darren Willoughby. And then I stayed there to do my, my PhD. And for the PhD, I worked with Dr. Paul Gordon and Lee Greathouse from the nutrition department. And my dissertation involved gut microbiome research. And as, I, as soon as I was done with my PhD, I went back home to Mexico to, to, to work. So I worked at a university, a medical school of Tecnológico de Monterrey, which is, is one of the best universities over there. And after a year, I got a pretty good opportunity to do a postdoc here with a very recognized researcher, Dr. Sarah Messiah at the University of Texas. So I came back and now I'm doing a postdoc over here. And yeah, the area of research uh, of, of the postdoc is basically obesity and metabolic embryonic surgeries. And I'm currently working on several grants to do gold microbiome research, which is quite expensive. So hopefully we receive good news in a couple uh, in the following months in that regards. Awesome. So, yes, the whole reason that uh, uh, that you're here today is to educate us all on everything related to gut microbiota and probiotics and all of that stuff. There's so it's like for maybe the past eight or ten years it's just been the whole concept is is growing in popularity about uh you know the the gut is is what do they call it the second or the third mind or something like that and how it's all all of that so it's very very uh it's very apparent it's like you can't go into the grocery store without seeing something on the shelf that says probiotic or um or something you know along those lines but uh, there's so much information out there that I don't I don't know if it's just watered down so much to a level that people just uh, I, I get questions about it all the time and I don't know how to answer them. So thank you for coming on and educating us on all of this. So sweet. Thank you. So, for sure. So let's start out with um, 
a couple terms, right? What is prebiotic? What's probiotic? What's symbiotic? What's postbiotic? Um, what do, what do these mean? What do these words mean? <clears throat> so I'm going to start with probiotics. So the definition of a probiotic is a, a leaf microorganism that when conferred in adequate amounts to the host, it provides health benefits. So um, a prebiotic basically, in few words, is the food for the probiotic. Um, and the actual definition of a prebiotic will be um, a non-digestible ingredient that when administered in proper amounts, it can confer health benefits. But it has to, in order for an ingredient to be considered a prebiotic, it has to satisfy certain criteria. For example, it has to be, number one, it has to be resistant to the low pH in the stomach. So resistance to the uh, hydrochloric acid in the stomach. Uh, number two, it, it cannot be hydrolyzed by mammalian enzymes, so we cannot digest it basically. Uh, number three, it has to promote the, it has to be fermented by bacteria in the gut, and it has to promote the growth of bacteria, specific bacteria that can confer health benefits. So if an ingredient can have all of those checks, um, then we can consider it a prebiotic. Because there is a misunderstanding that all fibers are prebiotics, for example, and that's not mm -hmm. the case. Not all fibers are prebiotics, and not all prebiotics are fibers. There are other molecules, like polyphenols, that can have a prebiotic effect, and they are not necessarily fibers. So, some of the examples of prebiotics we have, for example, um, fructooligosaccharides, uh, inulin, galactooligosaccharides, and, and these are different types of fibers, and they are the ones that have the highest amount of research supporting their effect. But anyway, going to the third um, definition you mentioned was symbiotic. So a symbiotic is basically the name that we give to a supplement that contains a probiotic and a prebiotic. And, mm. and what I... I don't particularly like this term because if you think about it, a symbiosis or a symbiotic relationship is one in which both bodies get beneficiated. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in this case, the probiotic is being beneficiated by the prebiotic, but not the other way around. So I, I don't particularly like the term symbiotic, but when you see it used in internet, I haven't seen it used in scientific articles, but online I have seen it used and basically when it is used is because they are making reference to a probiotic and a prebiotic in one supplement. Gotcha. And so the, the other term is a little bit newer, postbiotic. So a postbiotic basically is talking about uh, metabolites that are produced by our bacteria such as, for example, short-chain fatty acids, um, which includes butyrate, acetate, prop propionate, or vitamins. Our bacteria are also able to produce um, several of the vitamins in the B complex and um, vitamin K, for example. And they could also be parts of the bacteria when you lyse the bacteria. So when you break into pieces of the bacteria, some of those parts also can have a health benefit. And so 
either the metabolites produced by the bacteria or pieces of the bacteria, and then they can receive the name of postbiotic. Now there's another term, a newer term, known as paraprobiotic. And paraprobiotic is just basically bacteria that have been killed, but they're still able to confer some of the health benefits observed by probiotics. And so basically, this bacteria can be inactivated through ultraviolet light or freezing, drying cycles or heating, or even mechanically, which is something probably we wouldn't do with capsules. But um, any of these ways can, can inactivate or kill the bacteria. And we still can have some of the health benefits because Basically, the way how we recognize the bacteria is by the components they have in, in the cell membrane, so the, the extracellular components. Those components can be recognized by receptors we have in the gut. Mm-hmm. And so even when they are dead, they still can have some of the health benefits. And one of the benefits of using a paraprobiotic above um, a probiotic that is alive is that we can use these type of, of supplement with people that are immunocompromised. So mm-hmm. let's say somebody is um, severely ill or if they, they have been taking glucocorticoids or immunosuppressants for a long period of time or they have HIV or, you know, any of these conditions that can weaken your immune system. In those cases, the use of a probiotic might be risky because the bacteria can actually translocate. Um, the, so, so basically, in our in our intestine, we have um, well, particularly in the colon, we have a mucus layer protecting the translocation of bacteria from the lumen where they should be into mm-hmm. our system. And so, we don't want bacteria in our blood. We don't want bacteria passing into our system mm-hmm. and so that is there to protect the, the our system basically we, we do need the bacteria but we only need the bacteria to stay there not mm-hmm. in our system and so um in in conditions in which you know you're talking about people that have been for some time in the hospital or or any other immune condition the mucus protection can get weakened and also the space we have in between the cells in the colon, the colonocytes, is, it gets like expanded. And so the bacteria can pass through it. And so um, in those conditions, having a, a bacteria that is dead is definitely more beneficial because the translocation would not happen. Gotcha. So yeah, so you're reducing the risk of, of like uh, any sort of bacterial infection because you're you're essentially introducing something that's not able to uh, actively negatively affect the body. Exactly. Exactly. So you prevent endotoxemia and potentially even sepsis. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. I hadn't, I had not heard about probiotics or, or uh, what are they called? Paraprobiotics? Paraprobiotics, postbiotics. Yes. Postbiotics. That's what it was. That's crazy. That's really interesting. So a couple of these uh, items I had seen on, uh, I'd seen you post about on Instagram. And then there was one that I had, it was another one that I'm, I consider myself fairly 
educated in this realm, but every time I look at some of your posts, I'm like, what is this? I have no idea what any of this stuff is. So it's all very, very interesting to me. So let's talk a little bit about alpha diversity and what is that? Why is it important? And uh, yeah. Okay, that's good. So alpha diversity is mainly talking about the variety of bacterial species we have in our gut. And so the way how I explain this to my students is in any community, you need a variety of professions. Like in human communities, you need a variety of professions. You're going to need uh, professors, scientists, welders, um, you know, cashiers. You, you need every single profession in order for us to live in the way we do and, and to be successful in our community. No? Mm-hmm. And so the same happens in, in the gut microbiome. You're going to need bacteria that produce certain fatty acids and other bacteria that will produce um, vitamins. Or there are bacteria that produce neurotransmitters. So, you know, you, you need all these different bacteria to perform the different actions so that they can maintain or alive. So the higher the alpha diversity, uh, it seems that the better the health outcome. So high alpha diversity numbers having correlated with health status, whereas low alpha diversity has been related with disease states, such as, for example, Crohn's disease or depression, even autoimmune mm. diseases. And so um, it seems that in general terms, it is one of the consistent things we have observed through the different studies. So higher alpha diversity seems to be related to, to better health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And the way how we how we increase alpha diversity is by by having high variety in our diet. So not all the bacteria are fed with with fiber, for example. We have bacteria that are fed with proteins or even uh, fat components. So you need variety in your diet. And um, besides variety, another thing that has, I would say, um, predicted high alpha diversity will be high quality in your diet, high fiber, and even physical activity. So higher physical activity levels having related to higher alpha diversity. Mm. Very cool. So um, you shouldn't just be eating chicken nuggets? For breakfast, lunch, yeah. and dinner. <laughs> Should <laughs> probably switch that up. Very interesting because at the time when I realized about this, I was doing meal preps on on weekends, you know, and so I'll be eating the whole week the same thing because I just didn't have time to cook. And mm-hmm. when I realized this, I was like, oh, oh, I cannot do this. I mean, I will do um, my meal prep, but I will have to do several meals that are different or at least change all the vegetables. Like every day I will be eating a different vegetable at least, you know, just trying to be creative with my time and, and trying to be unhealthy. But yeah, it's something that we have to consider. Yeah. Cause I know, um, there was research that I learned about, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe when I was in college. So we're, we're talking like, 2005 maybe like which that feels that's too long ago <laughs> anyway um was showing that people who tended to eat the same things for breakfast tended to have a uh lower body weight and I'm like oh that's really interesting so 
you know, I'm in college, I'm pretty much eating the exact same thing for breakfast every time I go to the, you know, the cafeteria or whatever. And uh, it's just very interesting how um, there's things like that, that, you know, we all assume like, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, then we should just eat the same thing for breakfast that we do every day, eat the same thing for lunch, eat the same thing for dinner. And I know people who do that. They, they don't vary their diet very much at all. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it may work well for some people who just like a ton of structure, but at the same time, it sounds like the more variety you can have in your diet, you know, the more, uh, alpha diversity you'll have. And then in general, the healthier you'll be. So there's pros and cons to eating, you know, the exact same things all the time. But I see, like, I work with a lot of kids and anytime, you know, the issue of like, the parents will say, Hey, like, how do I, uh, how do I get my kids to eat so that they'll run faster or so that they can train harder or whatever? And I'm like, well, you know, variety is a good thing. What do your kids like to eat? Oh, French fries, chicken nuggets, pop tarts. Every day. Yeah. And like, (laughs) that's all they eat. Like mac and cheese. I know one girl, she only ate mac and cheese. She like, she didn't eat any vegetables. She only wanted mac and cheese. And her parents were like, well, if that's the only thing that she'll, that she'll eat without, you know, putting up a fight, then we'll just let her eat that all the time, lunch and dinner. And I'm like, "Ah, no, no, that's not the way to do it. We got to, we've got to introduce some other stuff in here. We need some vegetables. We need some high quality sources of protein. We need some high quality sources of fat. So, um, yeah, I had no idea that that would affect alpha diversity at all. I'm, I'm just thinking you can't have the same thing all the time. Like that, that can't be good for you, especially if it's highly processed. Like if you're eating pop tarts all, all day, every day, and I like pop tarts, but <laughs> can't have them, can't have them all the time. So no, you can't. And yeah, you, besides the effect in the gut microbiome, I mean, you need to have different sources of food so that you can have all these different sources of, of vitamins and minerals so that you are not always getting the same vitamin, the same mineral. So yeah, it's very, very important to have variety in, in the diet. Gotcha. So uh, what is gut dysbiosis? Okay, so there is actually a little bit of debate with regards to this definition because there are some scientists who believe that gut dysbiosis doesn't exist because we we cannot define what a healthy gut microbiome is, therefore we cannot define what a non-healthy gut microbiome is. Hmm. And so I believe that the term... Um, can be useful, but we we are not in the place where we can define yet what a healthy gut microbiome is. We can define some characteristics that are having related to healthy population, you mm-hmm. know, like high diversity, and therefore um, gut dysbiosis. The the only consistent definition that I have seen is low alpha diversity and high concentration of pathogenic bacteria, so bacteria that have been associated to um, increase the risk for the development of certain diseases, mm-hmm. uh, and probably even low concentration of probiotic bacteria. So those would be the, the closest definitions, I think, that we can give for gut dysbiosis. And gut dysbiosis has been related um, to, to different diseases, such as, for example, autoimmunity, 
so diseases like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis um, that in which the, the immune system basically uh, turns against you. And, mm-hmm. and so it's all microbiome having a play in the development of those diseases. The same with allergies, asthma, uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and even depression, uh, chronic depression. So all of these diseases seem to have a gut microbiome component. We're still trying to understand, um, you know, if this is the cause or consequence or how much we can actually fix it to prevent the development of people that are at risk. But uh, but I believe within the, the following few years, we'll be able to better understand this field. So what we can say right now is that having low alpha diversity is associated with with uh, the development of certain diseases. So it's something we definitely want to avoid. So even when somebody might be probably in the normal weight, as you said, because they have low variety in the diet, or they don't consume that much fiber, that doesn't mean they're healthy necessarily. That doesn't mean that the immune system is 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 healthy and will be able to attack, you know, against pathogenic bacteria or even viruses or whatever. So it's something that we need to to keep into consideration. Yeah, the the whole idea that it's connected to uh, mental health is extremely interesting. Just because, like, you can uh, you can see somebody who may look really fit, may look like they have a very very solid control of their diet, but if they're if they're only eating, you know, grilled or baked chicken and broccoli and either sweet potatoes or rice, because like most figure competitors or physique athletes or bodybuilders like that's pretty much all the variety that they have like they want to they want it as controlled as possible um and i know uh that may also play into um like you said depression or other issues related to mental health just because um yeah just because you're eating the same thing like there's not that diversity there and um diversity in diet and then also then diversity in uh, gut microbiota. So, um, yeah, that, that's really, really interesting. So I, I have a feeling that's going to be a huge area of, of research going forward now, just because everybody's concerned about mental health. It's such an important component of general health and of, you know, it affects every aspect of your life. So that's crazy. That blows my mind. Yes, it is. And the consumption of of fiber, for example, is, is, extremely important and it's one of the reasons why I don't particularly endorse diets such as the ketogenic diet for Mm. example because you're basically cutting carbohydrates and there's some people that have told me but yeah I supplement with a little bit of fiber and I'm like yeah but it's just one type of fiber like when you are eating a variety of uh, foods I mean you're you're including different types of fiber so um, I, I do not particularly recommend you know to consume this type of diet just because the effect that it could have in the gut microbiome. Mm, that's so interesting. And yeah, you, in, 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 in psychological health too. So it's probably something that we haven't even thought about. Yeah, that's, that's an aspect that is rarely discussed. Like keto is so, you know, it's really popular right now. Or even like, what about the carnivore diet? Like no fiber at all. Like, and that's gaining popularity. Um, tons of traction right now like I forgot uh was it July or August maybe even earlier in the year like there's a month now where people are like trying out like 
just just going carnivore. So no no fruits, no vegetables, most like just meat, animal source protein and fat. And yeah, that's gotta that's gotta just kill off a bunch of bacteria in your gut that rely yeah. on you know carbohydrate sources of of you know what is it probiotic food if you will yeah like that that's crazy so how long like let's say somebody does that and then they do that for a month and then they transition back to eating you know a relatively wide variety of fruits and vegetables how long does it take for that bacteria that you just killed to then repopulate and get you back to where you're in uh, a state of higher alpha diversity? Well, um, I don't think there's an accurate answer to your question uh, backed up by research, but we do know that the changes in the diet quickly reflect a change in the gut microbiome. And so like whenever I, ha- when I, whenever I do research, taking uh, full samples, because that's the way how we analyze the, the gut microbiome of, of individuals, we have to collect their diet of the two days prior so that mm-hmm. we can analyze the effect of that diet in the gut microbiome. So it's very quickly the effect. However, if you already killed that bacteria, it doesn't mean that because you're eating uh, higher fiber in your diet, you're the, the bacteria is going to spontaneously going to start growing out of nowhere. I mean, you need to consume probiotics so that mm. you can integrate again those bacteria into your gut. Because the, the prebiotic, yes, will feed the bacteria that is present in your in your gut. But if you don't have already, you, you don't have any more of that bacteria that will depend on carbohydrates, I mean, you, you need to provide a probiotic source. So mm. I would say... Unless, unless you consume a probiotic, it will take pretty long. And and just just to add a little bit on that, the consumption of an antibiotic, for example, changes your gut microbiome for up to six months. Wow. Six months. So it's that's crazy. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's really profound, and that's another thing. Like I I know I know of athletes who have had gastrointestinal issues you know, they get sick and then they go on antibiotic and then they feel better. And then, you know, they go back to their regular training and they have GI issues for a while until everything starts to get back to quote unquote normal. And that, that can be really, you know, stressful and frustrating for somebody who, you know, like, Hey, I've got a marathon in three months. I'm over my, you know, my, whatever, my cold or my infection, whatever it was that they had to, you know, take the antibiotic for but getting back to the level of training that they were before and then trying to progress can be an uphill battle yes yes it can definitely be uh an uphill battle i there are some scientists that recommend to consume probiotics alongside the antibiotic at the same time Hmm. and in i have seen one or two articles showing that it actually helps with eradication of the infection but there are some other scientists that prefer to allow the gut microbiome to go back to normal by itself but you know that being said it will take forever you know to to try to go back to your normal and and to ignore the symptoms that you have so i i I personally prefer to consume the, the probiotic alongside an antibiotic 
That's really interesting. Yeah, it, it's still just the idea that there's a whole bunch of little things that are that are not you. Like they're separate, they're alive, but they all just kind of live inside you. Like that's still kind of a, a creepy concept. <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> and like it is. They help you, and you help them depending on what you're eating. And then yeah, it's just the the whole thing is just very very. You know, like we want to think of ourselves as completely, you know, like I'm an individual, but actually I'm not an individual. I'm made up of a, a lot of different things that contribute not only to my physical health, but also my mental health. Like it's. Yes, it's, exactly. When I, when so I started crazy. learning during my PhD, it was talking to me to, to realize that we have 10 to the 13 microorganisms in our body. Which that means is that we have one micro, one microbe per every human cell. So we are as microbes as we are humans, literally. And the reason why we cannot notice that is because their biomass is, is smaller. I mean, if we add up all the microbes we have, it probably is less than a kilo, you know, or around a kilo. But still, I mean, the number is really ridiculously high. Yeah, that is, that's insane. Like, they match every cell. Yeah. That's... One, one for one, yeah. That's crazy. That's so insane. So, um, that's given us kind of a really nice foundation. So, um, my, my whole perspective is, how can I relate all of this to sports, right? How can I relate this... Uh, and and provide benefit to my athletes. So, are there differences between uh, the gut microbiota between, let's say, an athlete and a non-athletic uh, population? There are differences. I think we still have a long way to go before we can uh, differentiate specific changes. But some of the consistent uh, changes that we have seen in athletes versus non-athletic populations is that they have higher alpha diversity, higher gut barrier function, so they are less likely to to be related with infections um, unless they are overtraining, in which case they actually have an increased risk because they, they have leaky guts, mm. which I can explain in a little bit. But some of the other differences is that athletes have higher production of butyrate and so they have higher amounts of bacteria that produce butyrate and also higher genera Prevotella and higher species of Ackermansia musinifera, which are species that have been associated with um, health healthy outcomes. So in other words, yes, it seems that that exercise is associated with um, a healthy gut microbi microbial composition. Awesome. Well, that's good. That uh, that makes me feel a lot better. Like knowing <laughs> that. <laughs> I mean, I haven't ever had mine tested, but I'm I'm glad that I exercise. Yeah, way. that's another good way to live. Awesome. So, um, can can having a better understanding of gut microbiota and probiotics can confer some like 
real-time athletic performance or recovery benefit? Um, yes. So there, there's one particular study that I would like to, to describe to you and to your audience because I think it will be quite interesting. Um, so basically for this study, it was published like a year ago in uh, Cell Metabolism, so a pretty good journal. And so basically they recruited 39 individuals. They, they had pre-diabetes and they were overweight. And they were randomized into a control group, which didn't work out, and an exercise group that worked out. And the, the workout was three days per week of aerobic exercise plus resistance training. And they did 70 minutes per week of both. And so um, the, the training period lasted 12 weeks, and they realized that the exercise group did improve the body composition, but within the exercise group, about one-third of the participants did not improve their um, insulin sensitivity and their glucose profile. So they were wondering, you know, like, what, what's going on here? Why these people receive the same exercise treatment, yet they did not see, they, they saw the weight loss benefits, but they did not see the effects in um, diabetes-related variables, okay? Mm -hmm. And so they went back and analyzed the gut microbiome, and they, they realized that the gut microbiome in responders versus non-responders was significantly different. And so those that responded to the exercise and in regards to metabolic benefits, they had a higher number of bacteria that produces short-chain fatty acids. And um, those that didn't respond, they had a lower reduction of GABA, which is a neurotransmitter, gamma aminobutyric acid and uh, short-chain fatty acids. So the gold microbiome was different. And basically, the gold microbiome of the non-respondents was pretty similar to the contrary group. Hmm. Like they hadn't worked out at all. And, wow. and, and so when they analyzed the initial gold microbiome, so before everyone started the exercise intervention, they observed that, that they were the same. I mean, there was no significant differences in between groups. But by using a, something called a machine learning algorithm, this, this algorithm was able to predict which people were going to respond to the exercise intervention versus which people were going to be non-responders. Hmm. And so by doing so, they, they were able to, to, in a separate group, predict which people were going to responding which people were not going to respond even before they started the exercise intervention so in wow. a couple of years from now it is probable that we might be able to do this type of analysis before we prescribe an exercise program and if we believe that this person you know won't respond to our exercise intervention well maybe we can give them a probiotic or something like that so that they can actually respond to the exercise intervention so i think that's an area mm. that the coaches that listen to your podcast might be particularly interested and i can share this this study with you uh, but yeah it's, it is very interesting how even when you when they have the same conditions when they have the same exercise program just because they have a different gut microbiome their response is going to be extremely different that's crazy it is. 
That's so cool. But yeah, like, you, you know, you see that, like you see athletes who they're doing the same type of training, you know, they tell you that they're probably, you know, they're eating healthier, they're eating well, but the, the adaptations are rarely, you know, equal between everyone in a training group. Like some people adapt, you know, much more, some people don't adapt as much. And, you know, we often attribute that to like, oh, well, maybe you're not getting enough sleep. Oh, well, maybe it's this, maybe yeah. it's stress. Well, now we know maybe it's your gut biome. Yes, part of it. So part of it, it could be genetics, but there's survival that we just have been ignoring all these years. And that seems mm-hmm. to be quite important. And that is the gut microbiome. And for me, that is good news because that's something that we can actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, probably we will be able to do something with regards to genetics in the future, but we cannot do something right now. So uh, yeah. if it's something related with the gut microbiome, we might be able to manipulate it. That's that's so cool. So related back to uh, to diet, right? Like, um, and you've you've mentioned this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about um, the differences that the different macronutrients play in gut biome, as well as uh, like calorie surplus versus calorie deficit. Okay. Yes. So a hypercaloric diet, so a diet lower than the energy requirements that you have, um, or even in, in weight loss, studies that analyze weight loss, they have observed an increase in alpha diversity. Um, and also a decrease in pro-inflammatory um, activity and and the opposite has been found when there's an overconsumption of calories there's an increment in pro-inflammatory um, bacteria but to me the most interesting changes are in regards to macronutrients so uh, for example we already talked a little a little bit about carbohydrates and fiber and how um, fiber can increase the, the production of short-chain fatty acids which in turn uh, actually can be detected by endocrine cells that we have in the in the colon and can increase the delivery of anorexigenic hormones. So by eating fiber, you increase the delivery of hormones that will decrease your appetite, like DLP1 or PYY, CCK. Mm-hmm. And so it is it is it actually has a you know a full metabolic pathway or mechanism of action that will describe how a high fiber diet confers benefits and besides decreasing the gastric emptying which we already know about it it has other mechanisms through which uh, diets can um, affect the delivery of gut hormones but anyway so that is with regards to carbohydrates with regards to protein we know that if the protein is easily digestible, you know, we have different digestibility scores for different proteins. So whey protein is easily digestible, but then we have, mm-hmm. I don't know, like uh, fish, chicken, and then like red meat, for example, or plant protein. Mm-hmm. And so it seems that easily digestible protein are digested in the first section of the, the intestine, whereas Proteins that are not as easily digestible, they will be digested in the later portions of the, of the intestine. And 
the reason why this is important is because um, if the protein is not digested fully in the intestine, it will pass into the colon. And, and so this protein, if, if it is um, excessively fermented in the colon, it can cause toxic compounds, such as, for example, trimethylamine oxidase, uh, which is formed by, um, by a consortium of bacteria in the gut and has been associated with negative health outcomes. Mm. Now, um, so this is going to depend on the digestibility uh, since until now, because there's research showing, for example, that the consumption of whey protein is associated with an increase, uh, I believe it was lactobacillus and a decrease in clostridialis. And so it, it had like a beneficial effect in the gut because it's easily digestible. Um, but it, the, the effect might be different regarding on the protein source, though we are still trying to understand that. So probably mm -hmm. it will take a year or two or more um, before we actually have more a deeper understanding in that area. But it seems that depending on the source, the protein is going to have a different effect. And with regards to, to lipids, for example, uh, I haven't seen that much research in humans in this area, but I, I do have seen um, research with, with animals in which they provide lard, which is uh, high in saturated fatty acids, and it promotes inflammation. Mm. And I have also seen... Um, in, in this in this same study, they, they were providing fish oil, and the fish oil had the opposite effect. So uh, the lard will increase bacteroides, whereas the fish oil will increase uh, lactate-producing bacteria, which has been associated with anti-inflammatory effects. Hmm. But the, the composition of the diet is, is very important, and um, we're still in the early understanding, so probably we will need more. But... Again, on the said recommendation, we just have another reason why we need to recommend, yes, it, it, it fat, but the healthier fat, you know, like uh, rich in omega-3 um, and each car eat carbohydrates, but the ones that are rich in fiber and probably proteins, we're still trying to understand which might be better than others, but, but they are. So it's not as simple as... Uh this macronutrient's good, this one's bad, like it, it all comes down to like these, these, uh, these ideas are, or, or the, the outcomes are complex and they're related to how easily digestible they are and um, other variables that are related to, maybe to eating specific types of fat or specific types of protein, specific types of carbohydrates. So um, people are always looking for like a simple answer like they want they want something really easy you know make it black and white and when it comes to the diet there's very few things that are you know super simple except for you know in general you know eat at your maintenance level or below that's probably going to confer some benefit yeah um eat of you know a wide variety of food and eat some protein eat some fat eat some carbs like why yeah. do we, why do so many people just want to like whole, whole scale, just, you know, you know what, let's just avoid this macronutrient altogether and see how that turns out. Like how long have humans been doing that? Like, I feel like that's not a, always a great idea. Like there's I don't think so. like probably for 
as long as humans have been around, you know, they've been eating whatever's available, like whatever they can get their hands on. And, you know, that's usually a, a problem. Well, I can't say because I don't know. It's probably a large variety of things, right? So that's probably how our bodies are designed to function optimally. Like we adapt, we can eat this and then we can eat that and then we can eat this over here, but we're not just eating the same thing all the time. And I think I agree. Uh, people will just want to do that. They want to get tunnel vision. I'm just going to eat this all the time. Why? Why do we do that? It's silly. So um, let's talk a little bit about supplements because that's, that's another huge, uh, huge area of both related to this and, and, uh, uh, related to gut microbiota specifically. So, um, there's specific supplements that you, you mentioned before that can contain both, or maybe there's foods that can contain both a prebiotic and a probiotic. So when it comes to picking out a supplement, um, is that something that you recommend everyone should, should take or, um, when, when do you recommend people take a probiotic or prebiotic? Okay, so I would like to base my opinion on, you know, like following and respecting science and, and the guidelines, such as, for example, the, the NIH Institute, I believe it's National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, and they their recommendation as to in which conditions or which diseases you should use a probiotic is number one in ulcerative colitis, in Crohn's disease, in necrotizing enterocolitis, um, when taking antibiotics, um, and also in eradication of Helicobacter pylori, which is a, another a bacteria that can attack mainly the the gastric um i would say those are the main ones oh even constipation they also recommend it for constipation although the evidence is less strong but it could help travelers area too so these are the, the ones that have strong scientific research backing up um uh, with a moderate effect so in those conditions i will feel totally comfortable prescribing uh, a probiotic. Now, if you are healthy, if you don't have any gastrointestinal issues, I probably wouldn't risk it by consuming something that will tear the gut microbiome. Um, mm. That being said, probably just having a healthy diet and consuming enough fiber and a variety, high quality, that would be more than enough working out too. But there are Again, this this is since this is a novel area of research, scientists don't agree on this. You will see other scientists that recommend the use of a, a prebiotic even when you have a healthy diet, because mm -hmm. they, their argument is that even when we are consuming the amount of, of vegetables that we are supposed to consume, like five servings per day, for example, we are not consuming the amount of fiber that we used to, uh, that that our ancestors used to. Therefore achieving the amount of inulin, for example, or fructose is quite difficult through diet, which it is. 
Mm-hmm. And so uh, they recommend to supplement with a little bit, maybe not a full dose, but a little bit of uh, prebiotics. So I don't know. I, I don't particularly take a probiotics or prebiotics um, in, in normal scenarios. But uh, if I take an antibiotic, then I, I will... I will likely consume a probiotic. That's my perspective. You know, this mm-hmm. might change the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as of now, I, with, with the knowledge I have, I, I do like to consume a probiotic when I take an antibiotic and just have a healthy diet, which, which is very rich in fruits and vegetables. I do eat uh, higher protein than the RDA. That's for mm-hmm. sure. All that, at least. Glad um, to hear that. Yes, <laughs> but I do make sure that I consume enough fiber, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a tough one for some people is to get that fiber in, and it's it's really yeah. important. So if for whatever reason you cannot take consuming of fruits and vegetables, then I will say by no means go ahead and take a prebiotic. Uh, Proteolithosaccharides, for example, or inulin, which you can get in any of these uh, stores, mm-hmm. or if you have any gastrointestinal issue that has shown scientifically some sort of proof, well, then maybe a probiotic will be your best option. But again, if you're consuming a probiotic and you have a crappy diet, I mean, it's not going to take you anywhere. You, mm. you need to feed the bacteria that you're consuming. Yeah, it's not a quick fix. It's a uh, it's a supplement for a reason. It's supposed to help fill in the gaps. It's not gonna re- like you said. It's not gonna replace a bad diet. Yeah. I hope everybody's paying attention to that line right there. <laughs> so, um, are there specific foods uh, that you'd recommend uh, just in general? Like, so I love kimchi. Okay, I'm like guys. that's very very fermented cabbage right so there's a lot of stuff in there i think that can be that could be beneficial for uh you know the gut biome um or microbiome so are there specific fermented foods um that would be good to eat on maybe not necessarily every day but on a relatively consistent basis uh there are some of them that have actually shown scientifically to have uh health benefits and they literally analyze this type of fermented food. If you look it up like that in PubMed, you'll be able to find some scientific articles for the, the majority of these famous um, uh, fermented foods. Mm-hmm. I, I don't particularly consume um, that, that much uh, like uh, that many fermented foods, but mm-hmm. um, I do, I do, recommend for example the the consumption of yogurt uh, mm-hmm. fermented yogurt and some of them have been enriched with lactobacillus and bifida bacteria and they have shown although in in high doses that that has some health benefits and again even when those bacteria are killed in the stomach for example in the hydrochloric acid in the stomach it may still confer some health benefits even when the bacteria is not alive. So, yeah, consuming these products has shown to have some some benefits. I I usually prefer to consume a higher prebiotic content in my in my diet and make sure that I'm consuming uh, 
vegetables that are rich in probiotics, such as, for example, asparagus, um, onion, garlic, bananas, soy, beans, and rich in galacto-oligosaccharides, uh, well, that will be a little bit more difficult to get, but in yogurt and also uh, for the babies in infant formulas and breastfeeding. That's why it's so important breastfeeding. I know it's a total different topic, but you were asking me in a previous question how to increase alpha diversity. This is something that we cannot control, obviously, but you know, breastfeeding is, is a very, very important one because it defines the core gut microbiome. And having a natural birth is also very important. So if you are about to be a future parent, uh, just, you know, try to have this discussion with your gynecologist and, and try to see the possibility of having a natural birth and breastfeeding your baby exclusively for six months because this seems to define not only the immune system and the defenses that the baby is going to have in the first two or three years of life, but through the rest of their lives. Because humans, during those first three years of life, uh, humans develop a core gut microbiome that will remain with them the rest of their lives. And so that's why having a healthy gut microbiome up front is, is really going to be part of your health in the rest of your life. It's so important to try to do one or, or both of these uh, recommendations. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, at one point in my life, I was planning on getting my PhD as well. And my, uh, my plan was to study bioactive peptides from colostrum um, because of their antimicrobial, antibacterial, antiviral, um, anti- uh, inflammatory sometimes like there's all these different components that are that are in colostrum and colostrum is you, you know it's usually only available within a very short period of time you know after birth and so uh, my goal was to was to study bovine colostrum on endurance athletes who are notoriously sick all the time just to see if that would help but um yeah as soon as as soon as a baby whether it's an animal or or a human, like once they're exposed to this new environment, um, you know, they've just come out of, out of the mother and their immune system is basically completely dependent on what their mother's immune system was. And now they're exposed to all these things. And without, uh, without that colostrum, especially within the first few days, you know, like that immune system is extremely weak. So to have all of those things right there and available, you know, like that's, that's what the, you know, human body is essentially designed to provide. And then that makes total sense. Like you're still, you're, the mother is going to provide, um, the probiotic benefits from breast milk and, you know, the baby's going to benefit from that. So that makes, that makes complete sense. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, that's very interesting. Um, so related to that, that's, a, that was a perfect segue because my next question is, how is uh, the gut microbiota connected to immune function? Okay, so they're pretty closely related. And I would say um, the gut microbiome is, is kind of part of the immune system now because it helps hmm. us to defend ourselves. And so um, 
There is something called micro-associated molecular pattern, M-A-M-P. And basically what this is talking about is about the extracellular components of the bacteria, such as uh, polysaccharides or extracellular polysaccharides or cell membrane proteins or um, nucleic acids located in the membrane. And these components basically are identified by receptors we have in our gut, such as um, toll-like receptors, inflammasomes, and basically what I'm trying to say here is that our gut is able to distinguish between good, good bacteria and bad bacteria. Mm. And in doing so, uh, it will create um, a response, and that response could be pro-inflammatory by creating cytokines that will cause you know, uh, pro-inflammation and the increased cytokines can increase the, the permeability of the blood-brain barrier in our brain, uh, which can increase the, the, the risk of um, toxins going into our brain, etc. Or that if we have good bacteria, then an anti-inflammatory effect will take over and will increase, for, for example, the production of interleukin-10, which has shown to have anti-inflammatory effects. So, there's a very close connection. And another important thing that I would like to highlight here, which is kind of related with the immune system, is when we are overtraining our athletes, there is an increase in cortisol, for example. So mm -hmm. there is an overactivation of the HPA axis, hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal axis. And that increased cortisol in our body not only suppresses the immune system, but also increases the permeability in our gut. And therefore, mm. it causes a leaky gut. And that's why it is, it is very important to, to prevent overtraining our athletes because we are increasing their risk for infections, opportunistic infections. And if, if they are doing a higher volume, we have to very closely check their diets and make sure they are consuming enough fiber or maybe even a, a you know, like a high volume when we know that, that we're close to overtraining, um, well, maybe in those cases, start consuming fermented foods or something like that to save there's a way for us to try to keep a strong uh, mucus production by increasing the short-chain fatty acids that we're providing to, to our intestine, to our colon. Wow. Yeah, that's... Um... That's really interesting. I had on a guest a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about uh, exercise-induced immunosuppression, specifically after uh, marathons, because uh, I forgot what the exact number was, but it's a really high number. I think it's maybe like one in five um, marathoners upon completing within the next two to three weeks have a pretty severe upper respiratory tract infection. And you know, like exercise induced immunosuppressionism is a serious thing. And if you're, it's, it's a natural part of, you know, the adaptive process, but if you're training too intensely and you're, you know, accumulating too much training volume, then that immunosuppression becomes chronic. And then, you know, that dump of cortisol is, it just, it's essentially like, it's just staying there and you're not only putting yourself at risk for physical injury, but yeah, your immune system's taking a huge hit there. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's important to keep in mind also, you know, that when you 
the reason why you take glucocorticoids like dexamethasone or any other glucocorticoids is because you want to turn off the immune system. Okay, you mm -hmm. wanna you wanna decrease the activity of the immune system because you have a, any some any sort of either autoimmune disease or pro-inflammatory disease, and so the same happens whenever you are working out. When you're working out excessively, there's an overproduction of cortisol, as as you mentioned, because we need to obtain energy, and therefore cortisol is the catabolic hormone of excellence and the main one to to um, create proteolysis. And so um, we, we really have to understand that that is affecting our immune system. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I, um, in one of the previous interviews I had, I, I told them, you know, you really don't want to overtrain during this pandemic. I mean, you want to have a strong immune system. So, yes, you have to work out, but not overtrain. You don't want to overdo it because it's particularly important right now. Yeah, you. that's super true like i've got plenty of athletes right now who aren't doing enough training and then i've got a few who are like i've got to pull back on the reins a little bit because they want to go overboard like yeah you you can do just as much damage you know by doing by training too much by training too intensely so um yeah there's a there's a pretty big window where you're doing yourself some good, you're doing yourself a lot of favors, and then you want to avoid either extreme. Just, I mean, just like anything else, you want to avoid those extremes. So, exactly. um, so we mentioned this earlier a little bit when we were talking a little bit about uh, mental health and wellness. But are there are there specific supplements or or foods that have been shown to be helpful uh, at at improving or helping fix uh, depression or or mental health problems. Yes, so actually that's another new term. So there are so many terms here in this field, but the, the supplements that have shown the probiotics that have shown a beneficial effect psychologically, they received the name of psychobiotics, mm. and so. Psychobiotics are basically bacteria that have shown anxiolytic effect or antidepressant effect, and they could affect our emotions. And it, it is, you know, the first time I read about this, I was like, what is the mechanism of action? Like, if you don't explain me the mechanism of action, it's difficult for me to believe that there they actually a connection between them, you know? Yeah. And so right now we are trying, we're starting to understand that mechanism of action and. What we know until now is that our gut microbiome is able to produce neurotransmitters, such as, for example, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, um, acetylcholine. And so these are neurotransmitters that we only previously thought they were producing in our brain. But now we know our bacteria are capable of producing those neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. And so now the next question is, how do they communicate? I mean, they are producing the lumen in the gut, but how do they get in touch with our brain, you know? So there seems to be three three pathways. So one would be through the immune system, the other one through the uh, vagus nerve, which uh, communicates both, and the other one will be through the enteric nervous system because we have a bunch of neurons throughout our uh, our gut, mm -hmm. and so that seems to be the, the potential mechanism through which the neurotransmitters are communicating with our brain. And so we know now there is a 
close and very tight connection between the gut and brain known as the gut-brain axis. And this communication is bi-directional. So what we are feeling affects our gut. And mm-hmm. what is going on in our gut can affect our brain. So it can go both ways. And some of the potential psychobiotics that have been used uh, are lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, which are also probiotics. And they have shown to have psychobiotic activity. They are gram-positive bacteria. And they have shown to increase happiness in people that had low happiness scores. Okay, mm-hmm. so if you're already happy, you won't create more happiness. But if you have low happiness, it, it might take you back to normal. Mm-hmm. And also, it has shown to decrease the response to stress and um, improve mood. So, um, in people that have chronic depression and other depression-like symptoms, it, it has shown to to improve. So, I, I don't particularly know what exact dose, um, but if you're trying to use it in these terms, well, you, you got to go to the studies and see what specific um, species they're using, because when I say lactobacillus, that's a full family. I mean, you, you want to check what is specific, lactobacillus acidophilus, lactobacillus lactus, bifidobacteria, what, bifidobacteria brevis, or which one? I mean, there are so mm-hmm. many different and with the bacteria. So you want to check what specifically are being used in the studies that have shown beneficial effects. And not only that, but you also have to check the concentration. It's not the same to consume one million uh, um, SFUs. I get confused with this because the the abbreviation in Spanish is UFC. SFUs is in English, right? I, I can't. <laughs> I can't stop with my Spanish and English. Anyway, <laughs> you know, if you're taking just one million of of, of SFU, um, and, and the study is using one billion, well, you might not see the the same response. So you you mm-hmm. want to try to replicate as close as possible the conditions and the same as frequency and duration of the intervention as as mm-hmm. the ones in the in the studies. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that uh, if you're like in the supplement industry, it's notorious. Like they're going to throw a claim on the label and then you're like, oh, wow, this does whatever it says on the label. So I'm going to take that. And it's like, yeah, well, maybe the dose is a quarter or a third or yes, with with the case of probiotics, maybe it's, you know, a lot more off than that if you're only taking a million and you need a billion then you know that's you know yeah big difference that a lot of supplements yeah like pre-workouts they have like super doses of like creatine or whatever it's like yeah that doesn't even yep. work. beta alanine citrulline <laughs> mm-hmm. malate it's like there's not enough in here like you're wasting your money just just get the ingredient that works exactly. use an effective dose so that makes sense so um all right, so I'm sure people are going to have a few questions about all of this. They're going to say, hey, Dr. Morales, I've got this specific thing going on. Help me out here. So if you uh, if you have the time and you like to respond to those sorts of uh, inquiries, how can people reach out to you or how can they follow you? How can they find you on Instagram? Because that's most mostly how, you know, how I'm following your work. Yes. So 
I mainly publish stuff like interviews or studies that I get published on Instagram. And you can find me uh, through my name is Elisa. You spell it E-L-I-S-A underscore last name Morales, M-O-R-A-L-E-S uh, underscore PhD. And you can also email me. Um, I think my my at Western email is probably the easiest one. So it will be again my name Elisa dot Morales at utisadwestern.edu. Awesome. Alrighty, and then I like to close things off by letting my guests share something that they think is really important for everybody watching and listening. So um, is there any parting words of advice you have for, uh, for the viewers? Um, well, I mean, just, just like to sum up a little bit of what I said, have high variety in your diet, high quality, high fiber, workout. Now we have another reason why we need to do all those things that we already knew were good. And if you're about to have a baby, just try to have this discussion with your gynecologist, you know, try to choose natural birth if possible and breastfeeding. And also try to avoid um, antibiotics unless they are necessary, particularly in the first three years of age, uh, which is particularly important at, at that age. Um, now, if you are going to take antibiotics, which in some cases it is it is needed mm-hmm. take it as prescribed okay if the doctor is telling you consume seven days take the seven days even if you start feeling better after three days four days do not do that you don't want to um, create antibiotic resistance or anything like that just just take your seven days and and that's it awesome oh i forgot one question and i didn't even send this one to you but i, I just thought of it so um what are the effects of alcohol on gut microbiome oh gosh uh to be honest i don't know i don't know how it affects the gut microbiome i would assume not favorably <laughs> what, I, what i do know and it's something i read recently is that there are probiotics that are being created specifically to prevent the symptoms of um like the day over yeah hangover yeah no way (laughs) oh that's cool um they they created a couple of phds actually got together to create this probiotic to and they literally they literally promote it in in their web page as oh for the day to prevent the the symptoms of the next day and the hangover blah 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 blah. you could have created so many other productive stuff but (laughs) but yeah it it has been on on so many magazines and news and everything so they have all the logos in there but um yeah besides that i i honestly don't know how the alcohol i would again i would assume that not favorably but i i mm-hmm. haven't looked at it i personally don't consume alcohol so it's not an area that i'm particularly interested yeah yeah i, I it just kind of popped into my mind i was like oh i gotta ask so yeah that it doesn't sound like it'd be something that would uh it would definitely probably doesn't help if you're consuming a lot of alcohol, but yeah, yeah it's, it, I think it all kind of comes back to that one thing. Like, do you have a good variety of healthy foods in your diet? And then 
you know, if you're having chicken nuggets every once in a while, that's okay, but not all the time. Maybe don't drink a ton of beer all day, every day. You're probably probably going to have a decent gut biome. But well, I'll have to I'll have to look into that one a little bit more. If you find anything, please send it my way. Okay. Cause I, I'm okay. interested in that, and I've, I've got quite a few clients who who are interested in that. So, um, um, yeah. Anyway, Dr. Morales, thank you so much for doing this. This has been so awesome. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned a lot. I know everybody watching and listening has learned a lot. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to get you back on in the future to discuss uh, more about this, more about uh, the topics that you're researching. And um, yeah, thank you again. For sure. For sure. All righty, y'all. Make sure you go follow Dr. Morales right now and uh, stay tuned for next week's episode. Adios.